Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. So welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are going to be discussing self-help books because she has finally read her self-help book for her Every Day I Write the Book blog challenge, the 2019 edition. We have that to discuss and we're going to get into whether Gail reads self-help and what other self-help books she might read. So I might jump in to help her fill out this category if she needs a little, if it needs a little thickening. And we are also going to be discussing Ask Again Yes by Mary Beth Keen, which was our book club book for December. And we can also just catch up on what we're reading because it's been a little bit since we talked. And I got to apologize right now. I have a cold and I've had a cold for like three days and my voice sounds terrible. So I apologize to people listening who are like, who does Nicole have on the show today? Because it's me. It's Gail. I just sound She's on the mend. She sounds much better. (laughs) Much better. We were supposed to record yesterday, and unfortunately, I had to wave (laughs) the white flag. (laughs) Didn't happen. Should we start with... Yeah, why don't you kick us off with what what you've been reading? I am kind of finishing off the year trying to get my my reading challenge books in. But before I got to that, I did finish one of the two nonfiction November books I was reading. And I think I mentioned this earlier on the show. It's called One Day... The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America by Gene Weingarten. So this is the guy who took a random date from the last 30 years, and then he found interesting stories that happened on that date, talked about them, and then traced what happened since in the intervening years. And the date he chose at random was December 28th, 1986. And each chapter follows a different story. It was good. It it was a little uneven because some stories just worked out being better than others. Some of them were more compelling. Um, There's a lot of true crime in here. There's a lot of kind of murder type stuff or accidents, things like that. There is, you know, somebody who was got married on that date who later changed genders, things like that. I enjoyed some of the chapters more than others. But overall, I liked it, and I thought it was a really impressive feat of research. The fact that he like picked this random date and then had to sift through newspapers and news reports from that day and then start to narrow down what he wanted to write about and then contact all those people, get in touch with them, and then you know ultimately decide which 20 stories were going to make the cut. And I just thought it was a really cool book. So it wasn't like the greatest book I ever read, but I'm really, really glad I read it. And I, I, I do recommend it for people who find that format intriguing. Now, what would you say are the stories that you gravitated towards? You said there was a lot of murder stuff, which I know is not your thing. Do you feel like human interest stories were uh, stronger? Yeah, that's a great question. The stories about like tracing a marriage or relationship or parenting over time. The true crime ones, sadly, are the ones that I remember the best. Um, There's one about a fire and the person, a baby that survived the fire but was horribly disfigured. So that was compelling. The first one is actually about an organ transplant. And as you know, that's something I'm pretty interested in. So it was about this guy who had died in an, an accident. And that no, actually, he had shot himself. That's right. 
He had killed his girlfriend and then shot himself, but then his heart was harvested for another person. So that had a combination of like the human interest side and then also some true crime. You know, there's some random ones. Like there's one about, do you know who Deuce is? The, uh, the kind of famous mom blogger. Oh yeah. Yeah. Heather Armstrong. Like there was one about Heather Armstrong that seemed really uh, a little bit of a, a stretch. And I was like, <laughs> maybe he's got that in there because he wants her to tweet about it. And he's hoping that like, if you include Deuce in your book, then you get, you know, some boat, some built in viral marketing. Um, like that one was kind of weak because what happened to her on that date wasn't particularly interesting, but what happened know, like, it, it just, <laughs> like, you can't leave us hanging. I don't know. Like, well, it was so weird. Like what happened to her on that date was she was playing this video game and she won it. Like she, she achieved the top level of this video game that she was really into at the time. And it, what it did is it sort of traced like how playing that game was like sort of the beginning of her, you know, her being different from her family and her independence from her family, you know, her whole story that she grew up in this Mormon family and then she left, she, she separated from them and and moved to California, went into technology and uh, lost her job because she had been writing this secret blog. And that's what the word deuce came from is to be fired from your job for blogging. So like, I don't know what happened to her on that particular date was much less dramatic than what happened in so many of the other chapters, which made me think like, how did this come about? It seemed a little out of place, but I, I, I liked it a lot. And, you know, I don't read a ton of nonfiction and I'm glad I read it. And it was, it was, it was just really just kind of a cool concept. So I read that. And then I read the self-help book that we're going to discuss today. And that book is The Best Skin of Your Life Starts Here by Paula Begoon. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. And then I read a backlist book, which I can save for when we get to our backlist conversation. And I'm still reading the 9-11 oral history because I'm reading it very slowly, intentionally. And I'm still listening to my birth year book, Charlotte Sometimes, for the 2019 um, Every Day I Write the Book Challenge. And that'll be my last book. And I'm about halfway done with that. So I think that catches us up. That does. Sort of, a, yeah, it's sort of a strange mix of books right now. It's really weird. And I finished Ask Again, Yes, which we're going to talk about today. Okay. How about you? What are you up to? All right. So right now I'm in the middle of a bunch of things. A couple of them don't come out until next year. And I actually finished something that doesn't come out till next year. So right now I'm reading A Good Neighborhood by Therese Ann Fowler. Oh, how is that? It's good. It's complicated. It's complicated. It has an interesting narrative structure. It's one of those books that is told by the chorus. I don't know that I always love that, but the book itself is really interesting and I'm enjoying the characters. So I'm about three quarters of the way through that and should be finishing that up soon. Okay. I'm also reading this book called The Black Cathedral by Marshall Gala. It's a book that's in translation. It's set in Cuba. It's about the Stewart family and when they moved to a poor neighborhood in Cuba. And it's told by a chorus of people who live in the neighborhood, like the neighborhood guys who hang out and uh, some of the women who live in the different buildings. And they all speculate on where this family is from and, you know, what it is that they're going to be doing in the community. 
And I guess the dad is a priest and he starts working on building this cathedral. He commissions having this cathedral built in the neighborhood. And it's about mostly his sons and his daughter and how they interact with this community and what happens in this community as this cathedral is built. A little bit otherworldly because there's this one voice that starts showing up and narrating the story. And it's the voice of a ghost who's like the murder victor, murder victim of one of the people who lives in the neighborhood. And uh, so it's interesting. I mean, it, it's a lot of Cuban culture and a lot about, I guess, colorism too within there because it's made very much of that this family is dark skinned and there's like lots of commentary on, you know, who's dark and who's light and who's, who's mixing up with who and for what reason. So definitely really different. And I'm looking forward to finishing in that and I guess having more complete thoughts on it. That is out next month in January. Okay. I also read, and I don't know how much I'm going to talk about it today, but I read My Dark Vanessa. I was just going to ask you if you'd read it. So thank you for sending that to me. I'll be able to send that back to you. And it's My Dark Vanessa is very dark. (laughs) I believe that it was going to be coming out in the beginning of January, but I think they pushed it back so that it is coming out in March. And it is basically the story of a woman who is contacted by... Someone who she didn't know in her past, but who knew the professor whom she had an affair with, if you could term it as having an affair when she was 15 years old with her English professor. And this woman has stepped forward to accuse him of sexual assault and to ask that she also come out and tell her story and back her up. And so it's all about her remembering you know, remembering their relationship and the effect it has on her, you know, how she views this relationship, you know, does she view it as salt or for her, it is a romance, is it romance and what she, what, what decision she's ultimately going to make, you know, it read a lot like three women. Yeah. What was the, um, I want to say her name was not Heather. I don't know why I want to say her name is Heather. And in, in Three Women Maggie? Maggie, yes. It read a lot mm-hmm. like Maggie's story. And in the beginning of the novel, mm-hmm. she makes a disclaimer. You know, she talks about – it's said in boarding school. You know, she was involved with this professor when she was in boarding school. That's the main character. And the author makes a point of saying that, you know, it's not based on anything exactly that happened in her school or anything like that. But I think I've read other places that it took her – a tremendous amount of time to write this novel. It's something she's been working on since she was 16 years old. I think she's like just turned 30 now. So she's Mm -hmm. been working on it for a good half her life to get this story told. And like, it is based very much in, in, in truth. So whether it happened at that boarding school or it's something that seems like she's been coming, trying to come to grips with. And yeah, With this book, you know, it is all about, I guess, the convoluted or the very complexity of the nature of relationships that happen, you know, when you feel like you're an adult or, you know, whether this was an affair, whether she would term it as an affair or whether she 
indeed terms it as a sexual assault is very much at the heart of this novel, like her exploration of what happened to her and what it ultimately means. Mm. Did you like it as much as you hoped you would? I don't know. It was such a dark novel. And like I said, this, like, it's just been a weird time for me to be reading stuff of such dark nature because it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so terrible or grim. And, you know, there's just so much grooming that goes on and it kind of just makes all of this violence against women, whether it's in their homes or in the workplace, it just makes it seem sort of inevitable, infinite, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a dark subject matter that, you know, I usually do not give trigger warnings, but if anyone has, you know, a background where that would be, I mean, I think the nature of the story itself already lets you know that if that would be a concern, but it definitely is not a book that skates around it lightly. You know, there are, there's sexual scenes with um, her as a 15 year old and with her teacher it goes a lot into, you know, the the reasoning of both parties in this relationship, you know, the justifications for it or the grooming of the young girl. So it's, it's really dark. Mm, okay. But I think, you know, I think well done. Yeah. My dark Vanessa, I feel like people will be, you'll be hearing lots about that book. <laughs> yeah. Probably much like, <clears throat> that was a much like three women. Yeah, that was a buzz book last year at Book Expo. Um, do you remember what she said, uh, what they said about it on that panel? I do remember them saying that she had written it long time, that it had taken her a long time to write it, that it was not a direct response to Me Too, but that certainly it was coming out during Me Too, that it was a highly personal account or highly personal and fictionalized account of what had happened to her. Um, and that's all I remember. All right. Should we get into backlist or self-help or awards? First of all, I came across a very interesting story. And what I love about, like I said before, when we share our literary news, literary news just doesn't spoil. You know, it's not like I'll tell you something and mm -hmm. you'll be like, oh, that happened so long ago. Anyway, saying this is not even that old. So in November, in early November, the Paris Review announced that Richard Ford was going to win their top literary prize. It's going to be given in March. And the only reason I really paid this story any attention was because Bruce Springsteen is going to give him the prize. And I know that you like Bruce Springsteen. So as it turns out, Richard Ford has a very colorful past. Like apparently he spit in Colson. Colson Whitehead's face at a party back in 2004 Oof. because he didn't like the review that he wrote and he called him a kid and told him to grow up. You know, this is like older male writer saying this to, I guess, at that point, what was that, like 15, 14 years ago, much younger up and coming Colson Whitehead. So when he, when it came out that he was going to be given his award, I guess there was like some backlash about the fact that he apparently has had run-ins before with authors and has admitted to using racial slurs in letters that he, he has written. You know, he's like 75 from Mississippi, doubled down on the fact that he was not going to apologize for any of the things that he's done, I guess, in, including spinning in Colson Whitehead's face. So that was just really interesting to me. And I guess 
Bruce Springsteen is a big fan of his and will be giving him this award in March. And of course, um, the Paris Review has gotten some pushback on that. Mm. I wonder what the connection is between Bruce and Richard Ford. Bruce is a big fan of his novels, Mm. which are set in New Jersey and sort of like, yeah. So it was like, interesting. Um, Oh yeah. And so apparently that wasn't the Colson Whitehead thing. Wasn't the only thing um, that he did. He, I want to, I want to get her name right. She writes so many literary, Alice Hoffman, right? She wrote a review that he didn't like. And apparently he took her book into, into the yard and shot it (laughs) and sent it to her. Oh my God. What a jerk. Oh. So, yeah, so there was definitely very, you know, like, pushback on giving someone who's done some questionable things into them and and didn't try very hard. So authors behaving badly. Yeah, really. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the top books of the year lists that have come out. Nicole sent me a bunch yesterday. Elle, Marie Claire, Oprah. I've seen a bunch from Real Simple, Lit Hub, Guardian, Box, Guardian, Vogue. Everyone's got a list out. Washington Post has a great list out. Everyone's got a list out. What are some of the books that you've noticed that have been popping up? Well, I keep seeing Trust Exercise, Normal People, Dutch House. Um, those seem to be appearing. Three Women, Water Dancer. I have seen The Need appearing a lot. I mean, I tend to recognize the ones I've read, but City of Girls, um, those seem to be very common. And then and then each of the lists kind of has its own ones that are more of the outliers. I was laughing today because I saw one today that had the farm on there, which you and I yes. read in a book club. Yes. Yeah. We didn't like – You know, I think, like I think the farm was on Marie Claire. I mean, you notice the difference between the list because like Marie Claire – the magazine ones, I feel like they had some of the more accessible fiction, which I think the farm was. It was mm-hmm. very straightforward. There were no tricks about it. It was dystopian. We felt like it could have, it would have benefited if they had really leaned in and gotten into more of the issues. Yeah, it turned into more of a thriller, which I don't think was a good fit. Right. It did turn into more of a thriller. The one that I made a few notes on was the Vulture one because they did have the most overlooked. They felt like they had the most overlooked books on there. And one of mm-hmm. those was The Need. I didn't see The Need on that many lists, but I did feel kind of vindicated when I was like, it, this book is totally weird. You'll read this. You may not know what to make of it. I think it's really good. I don't know if I quite understand everything that happened, but it was just like a very memorable manifesto relating to motherhood. And there was something that described it perfectly that I won't even read the description because it describes it perfectly, but it also gives it away. Like, I would have been mad if I read that and had not read the need. I'm like, this is perfect, but you can't say these things when you're trying to describe a book that people might want to read but have not read. Yeah. There was a book that reminded me of you, but just because it was about twins, The Grammarians, and it was about how they grow up. Oh, yeah. And they're kind of di- and shine. diametrically opposed in their, mm-hmm. ap- in their approach 
What, it took, is it to like literally to grammar that they? I think so. Catherine at Gilmore Guide loved that book. Um, and I have that sitting on my shelf somewhere. And I don't know, I've, I've been hit or miss with Catherine Shine in the past, which is why I haven't gone to pick that one up. But I, I did notice that that was on. She wrote this. The Three Weissmans of Westport, right? Is that the one yeah, that she wrote? Yeah, and she wrote. There was one that she wrote before that. I'm going to forget what it's called. Maybe I'll look it up. I read it many, many years ago. And it just, let's see if I can, I wonder if I reviewed it on my blog. No, it looks like I didn't. I probably read it before I started blogging. Uh, for some reason, it didn't work for me. If, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it is about this woman. It's about a friendship that soured when these two girls were teenagers and then they meet up later in life. And it's possible I'm completely confusing her with someone else, but let's just see. I don't know. It just didn't, it just didn't work for me. And as a result, I just was, have kind of shied away from, from the grammarians. Did you, did you read the three Weissmans of Westport? I didn't. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to see what this is the same book that I'm thinking of. She has a book with the best title ever called they may not mean to, but they do. I just think that's such a great title. They may not what? They may not mean to, but they do. Oh, <laughs> it's just a good title. It says everyone to everybody to somebody at some point. <laughs> Let's see. Is this the one? The Evolution of Jane. Yep, it is the same book I was thinking of. And it's about these two girls who were really good friends, and then they meet up again much later in the Galapagos. Like one of them is working there. She's a biologist, and. I just remember, and I don't, this is a bit of a spoiler for anyone who, <laughs> the book is not eight years old, so I guess it's not that much of a spoiler, but I remember that the resolution of what happened to the two of them was very unsatisfying, and I felt like it didn't really address it. So I was like, I've invested all this time to understand what tore these two people apart, and by the end of the book, I didn't really feel like I had a good sense of it. Mm. Yeah. You know, to, as always happens when these end-of-year lists come out, I read them, and I'm like, oh, there's all these books I didn't get to yet. And they're sitting on my shelf and I've wanted to read them all. And I haven't, I haven't read normal people. Um, I haven't, I don't know. There's a bunch of other ones that I don't even, I saw, I saw Queenie and Patsy both on these lists. I haven't read either one of those yet. I haven't made it to Olive again by Elizabeth Strout. That's been on a lot of these lists. I haven't read City of Girls. So it just kind of reminds me like, God, it's already December. And then, and then on the heels of these lists, I've seen some fantastic What's coming that are coming out. Yes. And I'm like, I'm not ready to close the door on 2019 when I haven't read all these other ones that are on the best ofs. And now they're already talking about the ones coming up and the ones coming up look amazing. I think next year is going to be a great year, especially for fiction. So, I mean, there's a lot of books that are appearing on a lot of the same lists, a lot of the same books are appearing on these lists. One thing I did notice is that there's a lot of me too books on these lists. There's the, the Dream House, which is a new memoir that is about an b- abusive relationship. It's not quite Me Too, but it is about a, it's about a same-sex abusive relationship. But then you have Catch and Kill, you have She Said, you have The Liar. There's lots of books here about a, a, either a physical or emotional abuse in relationships, and it's clearly a theme. And then, of course, you've got My Dark Vanessa coming just a few months later. Well, these... I mean, as you call them, the Me Too books, I think that we got a whole bunch of them this year. And I would think that we would get a whole bunch of them now because Me Too, that will forever be linked to me. Like hearing that story break was right when 
I believe I was in the doctor's office. And so that is just linked. I think Matthew Lauer's firing is just linked to that time for me because that was what was playing in the waiting room of doctor's office or whatever visits I was going through is when that story was, when that story was breaking. So when you think about the time that it takes to write a book, you know, I probably, all of those stories happen and it was just, then the Harvey Weinstein thing in the next two, two to three months and just, it seemed like uh, case after case unfolded over the next six months. And not that these books have not always been around, but if people have are galvanized to explore that more, you know, now we're looking, we're two to three years later, which is when all of these books are going to be published. So are being published. I mean, I guess if you really got the jump on things, you could have gotten something out in 2018. We saw a bunch of them in 2019. I'm sure we'll see, you know, quite a few in 2020. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed, like Goodreads too, like like some of the magazines had the more accessible titles. Goodreads had a lot of YA. So even before I could get to the top 10, when, once I weeded out for YA, they had books like Daisy Jones and the Six, The Silent Patient, The Huntress, mm-hmm. A Woman is No Man Made It, um, Recursion by Blake Crouch, which was also all over the place. Um, the Bride Test, An Anonymous Girl, which I don't think either of us ever got to this year. Um, the Unhoneymooners, The Testaments mm. on the come up. I haven't seen The Testaments on as many lists as I would have expected. Yeah, I think you're right. I only saw it like on every other list. I'm sort of <laughs> surprised. <laughs> and yeah, have they... Has Goodreads announced the final choices yet? Um, I think the final choices went up and were voted on. I don't believe they've announced it yet. Uh, okay. Book of the oh. month had their best of the best of the best of the books. Um, book of the year finalists come out. Mm-hmm. Did you vote for that? I think I did. Yes, I can't remember, but I think I did. So their finalists were Daisy Jones and the Six Recursion. The Silent Patient, A Woman Is No Man, all of which I just mentioned that were on the Goodreads top <laughs> 10 for the adult books. The only yep. one that was not familiar to me was This Tender Land. And of the oh, yeah. four that I know about, yeah, of the four that I know of, excluding This this Tender Land, I've read all of them except for Recursion by Blake Crouch. So Book of the Month is actually having a holiday party on December 16th where they were going to mention the finalist or the winner of this year's Book of the Year. They're having it at the Dream Hotel. It's going to be really fun. It looks really fun. And I'm going to go and report back. Yeah, I'm very sad. I can't go to that. That's a terrible time of year to travel. And in fact, I have to travel that night for work anyway, so... It, that was the, the nail in the coffin for my <laughs> attending that party. I went to one other book of the month party, holiday party, when they relaunched. And I, how long have they been around now? Since 2016. So that was a really fun party. So I'm looking forward to it. Nice. Yeah, let's talk self-help. Okay, yeah, let's do that. So I think you're a bigger fan of self-help than I am. 
or at least you um, incorporate more self-help into your reading schedule than I do. I only read this book because, well, I've had this book for a while. This one I wanted to read. So but I did, did it you because it was a category. I must have read about it at some point and I bought it. So I, you know, I, I was, it was something I was interested in knowing more about. It's a, it's a skincare book and I felt like I don't really have um, much of a skincare routine. I don't know how I've made it this long in my life without like really ever like figuring out what to do. And this book is very clear and very detailed. <laughs> and it says, these are the like six different things you need to do to your skin every day. These are the types of products you need to buy. These are the order in which to do it. If you have this type of skin, do this. If you have that type of skin, do that. And it's unbelievably helpful. And in the last like three days since I, you know, got into this book, I like have completely changed how I'm now treating my skin. And I know that probably sounds crazy to you because you are very interested in skincare and this is like a hobby for you. So you're probably like, why have you not been doing this before? And I don't have a good answer for you. So I'm going to say that my thoughts on self-help have kind of changed since I read this. I've always kind of dismissed self-help as like, oh yeah, I'm going to read it and then nothing will come of it. But this was super helpful. Like you should see how many pages in this book I have dog-eared to go back to, to like remember. I've, I've like, I've completely reorganized my entire bathroom. I went through all the skincare products on my shelf and like grouped them by what type they were. Is it a cleanser? Is it a toner? Is it an exfoliant? What am I missing? What do I need? What should I throw away? Oh my like, gosh. This has been Gail. super, super helpful. Okay. So I'm going to repeat the name of the book. The Best Skin of Your Life Starts Here, Busting Beauty Myths So You Know What to Use and Why. And it's written by Paula Begun, B-E-G-O-U-N. And I know she has her own skincare line and she does recommend occasionally some of her own products and that's fine. But like, it's just, she just breaks things down and makes things super clear. Hmm. I wonder if I use her skincare line. It's called uh, Paula's something. Paula's Choice? Yes. Oh, yeah. I use her. Paula's Choice. I use her, um, I think I use one of her vitamin C serums. Oh my God. She's really big on vitamin C. Oh yes. See, that was going to be the one thing that I told you. And I'm so big on not only is, does vitamin C, should it be, you should do it internally and externally. Like that's been always my thing with, you know, if you're out, you're drinking, whatever, make sure you get your thousand milligrams of vitamin C in the morning. Wait, Nicole, when we were talking about self-help books, we, I didn't mention to you that hangover book. Oh yeah. That's a self-help book. That is. Yeah. Yeah. All of your self-help help books are just super specific and functional. Yes. They're Hangovers, all about health. Right. Good skin. Yep. Yeah. I read a book about like parenting twins. Marie like, Kondo. Like very, yes. Very, I like very, very tangible, actionable, you know, information that I can use. I'm not good on, like you mentioned, business books. I'm not good on business books. I'm not good on change your outlook, how to be happy, like that stuff, that doesn't do it for me. But this type of thing where I can like take notes and then change things. But wait, let's get back to vitamin C for a second. So like you use a vitamin C serum and then you also recommend taking vitamin C 
for all the other health benefits. And she says that in here, that vitamin C is like the wonder vitamin. It is. It is. Vitamin C is also very unstable. So like a lot of times you'll see that, you know, people want to have very natural products. That's probably the one thing that I recommend that you need like a vitamin C that's been stabilized and that you can use because it is in order to be useful, it just, it doesn't last very long. And it's hot, you know, so that's one of those things that you have to invest in. Like the, even the vitamin C that I take in internally is a vitamin C that, I don't know, they suspended in fats and lipids so that it better survives your digestive system and can actually be delivered and to be of use. Because I guess a lot of supplements, a lot of things that you take that we take get are, can be destroyed by your, yeah, by the acids in your stomach. So, but vitamin C is very important. I would say vitamin C and vitamin E in terms of your skin. And if you are a smoker or, you know, or a drinker, that's like one of my things. That's like one of my things that I take. I'm pretty religious about taking vitamin C anyway, but definitely if I've had a night out, I like to give myself a boost because after a while, that works on your skin. I mean, one of the main things too, I think about skin is just the main, one of the big things is staying out of the sun. <laughs> oh, she, she talks about the importance of skin, of sunscreen and staying out of the sun. That is her main takeaway from the entire book. I think everyone will tell you that if, I mean, yeah, you can have a fancy, expensive or long routine. Like there's, Several schools of thought on that, you know, like the most recent whatever that's making the rounds is are you destroying the bio dio, the biodome of your skin, you know, like its natural atmosphere by using all of these things, you know, are people using too many products? But I think the number one thing that people will tell you is to stay out of the sun and to use sunscreen. Like I don't really use sunscreen religiously that to that extent just because I know how much sun I'm getting, you know, I mean, they say it's floating through the windows, you're getting it every time. I don't feel like I need to be hysterical about it. But if I'm going to be out for any, like long period of time, or if I'm on a beach holiday, or when I went to Las Vegas, I mean, I was really like religiously, every hour and a half to two hours reapplying. And especially with your face, the good thing about it is that you can get a lot of it layered in your skincare, like Sometimes your setting lotion will have it in there. Sometimes your moisturizer will have it in there. And then you can put on sunscreen. And I would think that my other thing would be to do whatever you do to your face, to your neck, and your hands. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was, I was like, what was I watching? I was watching some show. Oh, I think it was Younger, you know, that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sometimes there's this woman who, you know, lies is trying to pass herself off as much younger. And, uh, this woman is kind of on to her. She doesn't say anything to her, but she says, you know, your hands are always a giveaway. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. People yeah. neglect their hands. And when you think about it, I mean, the sun and exposure to elements are not the only things that are happening to your hands. I mean, you washing the dishes with them and we really don't moisturize them the way that they used to. Like a lot of times I actually will give myself a manicure or get a manicure just because it reminds me to treat my hands more gently than I normally would. Mm -hmm. It makes you think twice before you do anything. 
So you have a vitamin C serum you recommend? I like the Paula's Choice one. I think that one is, is good. I've used the Mario Badescu one. That's pretty good. I use the Elizabeth Arden ones that come in the capsule mm-hmm. because each one stays fresh and and you get it. But whatever vitamin um, C serum that you're using, that's one of the, you know, sometimes you have different cleansers or whatever, and you kind of alternate, I guess, depending on what you feel like your face needs the most at that time. Vitamin C, I will usually only use one at the time, just because I said it's not very stable. And I was talking, one of my friend's moms is a doctor. So we we're talking about vitamin C and bioavailability and like what you can actually get from these products. So she said that it's really not good after 90 days. So it's not one of oh, those wow. things that you want to have hanging around for a long time. So if you open something, I would just go on and make sure that I use that. They also mm, have this okay. thing that I have to look at and give you the name of and for the show notes. And because now it escapes me is that they have a vitamin C that comes in powder form that you can actually shake into your serum or moisturizer or whatever product you're using your lotion that it just, it dissolves right away. And I think they're saying that it um, stays stable longer, like because it's in powder form. Hmm. Okay. So what routine have you decided on? Well, I didn't decide on anything. I'm just following exactly what she says to do, which is cleanser, toner, serum, moisturizer, face sunblock. oil, yeah, or some well, that locks it in sunblock. It's a sunblock can sometimes be part of the moisturizer. Right. And if you're doing something like an anti-wrinkle cream that goes on before the, that goes on after the toner and maybe after the serum. So I am just like, you don't understand like this is, I've never done anything that with that many steps regularly. Oh, and twice a day, like morning and night. So that is, that's what I'm doing. I mean, like it's only been three days, but like, that's what I'm doing. So I'm going to give this a chance for a while, see what it does. You have to do four to six weeks. Your skin turns over every 30 days. So I'm sure you'll notice some things that before that, but you can really see in four to six weeks what something has been doing with your skin and if you need to tweak it. And of course, if you are using anything that causes you to unduly peel or break out or anything, stop using it, except for uh, I would give retinol, any retinol product that you use may cause some flakiness or whatever. So you really have to moisturize and make sure you wear sunblock if you use retinol because you don't. And when you apply retinol, it should be to damp skin because that gets it through more layers of your skin. And if you use anything with hyaluronic acid, you you should apply that to damp skin because it uses the moisture to like use that moisture to penetrate your skin. I don't think it does anything if you put it on dry skin. The hyaluronic acid that I use is actually, I got a marine-based one that has more water in it, so you can kind of put it on your face by itself under your moisturizer if you want. Oh, you know a lot about this stuff. (sighs) Books, dresses, (laughs) and skincare. Like, not so much makeup, because I've just never really, never taken the time to do that, but yeah, skincare... Awesome. You would like this book because it will confirm how much you know. Oh, that's nice. I think that's why we read some self-help books. 
<laughs> yeah. Tell me what I know so I can ignore it. You know, like the Mark Manson yeah. books that are so popular now and even the Sarah Knight ones, you know. So I read this very mm. interesting article. It's about a year old in the New Yorker, you know, and it's talking about self-help. And of course, like anything, it's an industry. And even with skincare, I mean, it's something I indulge in more so as a hobby and because I like trying things out. And, and that's, like I said to you, I think on another show, skincare is usually one of the ways that I multitask with books, whether it's I'm doing a facial and soaking in the tub in something and reading a book for a while or, you know, doing a face mask or, I don't know, doing some kind of foot bath. I'm like about that in terms of relaxing and relaxing with, with a book, but it you, just like anything else that is, I guess, consumer based and want you buying products, it can be just like anything. I think that you have to define what your relationship is to it and how you're going to enjoy it. So that it's not mm -hmm. taking over your life. So your self-help book isn't making you feel bad. Like if you found something right. that's good from this book, then that's really great. And you found some things that you want to try out. But it shouldn't be for guilt. And two, with skincare, I recommend since consistency is such a big deal. Like if seven steps or whatever seems too onerous, like what I do with that is there'll be maybe two steps that I always do, you know, like whether that's cleanser and a serum, like if I just put on that, then <laughs> that's enough to mm -hmm. do that twice a day. And then if you can layer on, and most of the times, by the time you wash your face and put in a serum, then you're just going to go on and, and do the moisturizer and do the whole thing. But like if, if you're been out and it's late, I like to stress simplicity over, you know, doing a big routine erratically just because it seems like it's time consuming. Right. Cause things like ex exfoliating, you can do a couple of times a week or. Right. That's true. You don't do that every night and retinol That's you wouldn't do every point. night. Yeah. So Catherine read this book, the best skin of your life starts here from Gilmore guide to book. She gave it four stars. That's my, that's this book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I didn't even know she had read it. All right. Well, do you have any other self-help books that you want to share that you've enjoyed? Self-help books that I have enjoyed. I don't know. I think I told you I read You, How to Be a Badass or whatever in your, these culty <laughs> self-help books earlier in the year. I don't know. I mean, I read them more just – I don't even read them for the help. I just read them out of sheer curiosity of like what people are pushing and telling people that they should do. I think the ones that I enjoy the most are usually the ones that are about like why French women are better because their style is just so simple. Like you have one meal that you know how to cook really well and you just like really, they're really you focused, you know, like just owning your own place in the world and like knowing how to do one or two things really well. And, you know, you just want, need one dynamite red lipstick and one really dynamite silk panty set or something. I think that those are the best. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the Marie, the Marie Kondo ones come in handy to help you. Like if, if you feel like you need some help doing some organ organizing. I think definitely the Marie Kondo book is helpful. It can just change your outlook. You don't have to follow her to the letter. Right. But it certainly just makes you more conscious about what you're keeping in your house and why. Right. Yeah. 
And I did get to, you know, I got a lot from that. And I know my aunt, she loved watching the show. Mm, I do too. On Netflix, you know, just seeing like, so now she's always running around talking about like helping me tidy my drawers. And I'm like, well, doing the folds as intricately as she does it, I feel like that would not be helpful for me because I don't feel like I would be able to find things. But just definitely having a place for things and going over your wardrobe in terms of turning it over. I think things like that are really helpful. Right. So that's the end of our regular scheduled programming. We're now going to talk about Oh, wait, we're going to do our backlist books. Oh, our backlist book. Yep. That's right. Thank you for really reminding Okay. Well, I'll start. So I read uh, for the book challenge also. I chose for the Pulitzer Prize winning book category, Jhumpa Lahiri's Collection, Interpreter of Maladies. So this is definitely a backlist book. This came out in, seeing what year it was, 1999. And these are short stories by the author of The Namesake, the author of uh, Unaccustomed Earth, and I'm forgetting what her other book was. Um, I love Jhumpa Lahiri. You and I, years and years ago, did an online book club discussion of The Namesake back when you were doing your radio show, your precursor to your podcast. Um, I do really love Jhumpa Lahiri, and these were great stories. They're all about... It's kind of her typical themes about mostly Indian immigrants, newly in America, almost always in Massachusetts, usually somehow connected to MIT or Harvard. Um, Lots about relationships, about kind of uh, husband-wife relationships, people getting to know each other. Uh, And I just really liked them. I mean, it's the usual problem with short stories that I have, which is that they don't linger and last with me the way a novel does. I feel like just as I'm getting to know the characters, we move on to the next story. And that's the case here. But I do find her to be such a beautiful writer. And um, I know a lot of people were really kind of dreading the Pulitzer category because they felt like it was going to be a lot of very inaccessible choices. And that was not the case with this one at all. And I, you know, I, I prefer her novels, but I'm, this has been on my shelf for years and years and years. And I'm so glad I finally read it. What's so that is my backlist book. Her other novels were what? The Namesake? Namesake, um, Unaccustomed Earth, and let's see. I'm going to look up what the other one was. I think there's a third. I think I've read all three of them. Are you um, a completist? I love the namesake. Mm, I may be at this point. Let's see. <clears throat> oh, The Lowland. That's what I, I was like. I knew there was something because I read The Lowland yeah. last year. Yeah, The Lowland, Unaccustomed Earth. And the namesake. You know what? You and I actually read Unaccustomed Earth for the, for the, um, <clears throat> when you did the That's How I Blog episode with me, it wasn't the namesake. It was Unaccustomed Earth that we read. Oh. So yeah, I've read those three novels plus this one. So I don't know if I'm a completist. I'm not sure what else she has. Oh no, she has the ones that she wrote when she start when she went and she learned Italian. And then she was like writing in translation or she did something (laughs) like that. Were those fiction? Um, And I don't, I don't, I don't think they were. I think, 
I want to say that it was like memoir, like about what the experience was going, learning right. Italian and starting to like the, the translation. Yeah. Relating in a, in a different language. Yeah. Well, maybe I've read all of her fiction then. I'm just a huge fan of hers. I, I love her very understated, quiet style and very elegant, but simple writing. And I just love the, she's so much compassion for the people that she's writing about. And this book was no exception. So I really recommend it. So my backlist book is going to be Reconstructing Amelia by Kimberly McCree. At one time, Nicole Kidman was attached to do a movie to it. I'm not sure if that movie ever came out. And I'm super curious because I would like to see it. I remember really liking this book more than I thought I would. It falls into the thriller category. It is about a mother. She's a single mother raising a daughter. She works very busy days at a prestigious Manhattan law firm. And her daughter goes to day school, I believe, you know, like a prestigious day school in Brooklyn. And then she gets the call that no mother wants is that her daughter has committed suicide and that she's jumped off the roof. So she has a lot of guilt about this. You know, they had been fighting right before her daughter died. It was one of those books that I read, you know, you kind of go through this, it happens. And you really wish that there's going to be some sort of fairy tale, I don't know, some kind of fairy tale ending to this where the daughter pops out alive. So not a spoiler alert, because she clearly dies in the beginning, but she, you know, she doesn't end up alive. And it's about this mother who is going through her social media, you know, her cell phone, and just trying to figure out what happened to her daughter. Really compelling and really good. I've meant to read other books by her, but I never got around to it. I don't know if the other ones that sounded is on my shelf. quite as good <clears throat> as this one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really recommend that one. Yeah, I think it is on my shelf. I'd like to read that one. I'm looking so, it up because yeah. I, I wonder if it got lost in the shuffle or if it came out and... Oh, the movie version? Yeah. No, I guess it's still just in development. Didn't get made. Mm, okay. Okay. So I think maybe now we're ready for... Now we are ready. Our book club conversation. Our book club conversation. I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to tell you, Gail. I told you about the Grammarians. I told you about Bruce Springsteen giving that award. All right. Book of the Month holiday party. If there's anything I missed, I will get to it next week. Okay. So we are moving into our discussion of Ask Again Yes by Mary Beth Keen. We'll give a quick synopsis of the book that doesn't spoil anything. And then when we're going to jump into spoilers, we'll let you know. So if you don't want to know more about this book, You can turn us off. So Ask Again Yes is about two families that live next door to each other in suburban New York. Both of the fathers are New York City cops who were partners for a while. And the families are not close. The the wives are not close. One of the wives is very difficult and makes it impossible for them to be, for there to be any relationship between the two. Something happens tragically happens between maybe about 12 or 13 years after the family, the families moved together. Actually, I think it happens a little later than that. And this thing that happens sort of inextricably links the two families together forever moving forward. So it's all about how they deal with the aftermath of this event. And it goes many years into the future and tracks 
the kids of the family and the husbands and wives and how their lives change as a result of that event. So I don't think there's much more we can say after this that will be non-spoilery. So I would say if you want to avoid spoilers, now is a good time to turn us off, go get the book, go read it, and then re-listen to the podcast later once you've read it. Because from here on out, everything we talk about will be a spoiler. Um, what did you think of this book? I thought it was I thought it was good. It was a little bit uneven for me. I felt like there were parts that I was very interested in. And then there are other parts where I feel like it felt a little bit long to me. Mm. I did really like the treatment, the differences between the two families, though, just how they live side by side. And I think it, it was really surprising to me where the story went, like when it first starts out with these two cops who are very different, you know, both one claims jokingly to be of Irish descent. Um, meaning he's been in, you know, his family has lived here for a few generations. And one is uh, someone who had been born here when he was a little, you know, he was born here as an infant, went back to Ireland for like, what, 17, 20 years, somewhere around that comes back as a young adult and sort of drifts into the police force. Uh, I, I thought it, did a very good job of how it handles trauma, how it handled that traumatic event, you know, handling trauma over a family and from generation to generation and how it seeps into, into them. Mm -hmm. I loved this book. I thought it was so compelling. Um, it was deeply sad, like everything else I read in life other than the skincare book. Um, it was, but I just, I thought it was so, uh, I don't know. I felt such emotion, especially for Peter. Peter is the son of one of the moms and she's the one with mental illness. And he just shoulders such a burden through his life. And you just want to hug him. You just want to reach out and say, my God, you have nobody on your side. Who's like, you know, here to help you and tell you they understand. I mean, I guess he had his uncle, but he was very on his own, much on his own and he really had to bear so much. And I just kind of wanted to like, you know, reach out to him. And I thought, you know, she was, she did such a good job of really showing everybody's perspective and how with the exception of maybe one person, there really aren't that many villains here. You know, everyone's carrying their own crosses, bearing their own crosses. And you start to understand why they act the way they do. And, you know, it's kind of about forgiveness and just like going on with life and, and learning to forgive people who disappoint you, even when it's a very big disappointment. Anne was so compromised with mental illness and you, you did start to understand where the, the, the illness came from, the trauma that she had early in her own life. Um, you know, she was abused and um, never told anybody, never got any help for it and then came to the America as an immigrant and you know, never had any way to, to handle that. And I sort of feel like she was handicapped from the beginning. You know, she had such limited emotional means to express love. And I think she tried, she tried, but she couldn't, she was so hindered by what was going on in her head. And then you had, forgetting her name, the other, the other mom, who was such a 
Lena, who was such a kind of quintessential giver, such a generous, forgiving person um, who clearly embraced motherhood, embraced being a wife, you know, tried to reach out to Anne and be a friend and that didn't work. And they, so, I mean, I think you just see like that, that poor Anne, just like the, the, everything was really stacked against her from the beginning. She, she didn't, she didn't really stand a chance. And then how do you think that that trickled down? What did you think about the differences with Kate? Yeah. I mean, Kate, like Kate was so loyal and understanding and, you know, she stuck through Peter and, and, and wanted to, um, you know, help him solve, address the alcoholism and figure out what was going on. Um, you know, she was very protective of him, very angry at, at Anne. Um, you know what, the one thing that bothered me, and I think it mostly related to Kate was I felt like there was so much sadness in this book and so much difficulty. And I don't think that the author, Mary Beth Keene allowed for enough joy. Like there was so little times that any of these characters got to experience any joy. And if they did, it was off screen. Like we learned about it later. We heard about it in a summary as opposed to experiencing it with them. And I felt a little cheated. I was like, you know, there's so much darkness here. Haven't we earned the right to have a little bit of payoff? I think that that was one of the issues that I had with this book. Like what, clouded my enjoyment of it like a lot of things that I read in this time period Patsy I would say the same thing you know like compelling characters people that you want to root for their stories their lives are so hard I don't want to trivialize the fact that anyone's life can be difficult and and maybe seem unrelentingly difficult I just think that with fiction like when you're relaying that it does not hurt to give like, I wanted a little headspace with this, you know. I think that that affected how I absorbed this book because it was almost like just absorbing blow after blow that sometimes it was just mm-hmm. difficult to concentrate on it. Or I don't know. I think that if there were just moments more of family togetherness, like everyone's life was so difficult. I feel like the men work so hard. They make a point of the fact that they work in jobs that are so different from where they live. In fact, Francis purposely goes searching for this neighborhood where Lena is kind of, she wishes that she had more life, you know, like she's from this bustling family. And I think they're from either Brooklyn or Queens. And they kind of move to this <clears throat> like really sterile in a, in a sense neighborhood, you know, someplace that's really safe, but that Francis I hope I'm not catching your cold, Gail. You sound like me, yeah. (laughs) Francis really needs to have that difference. You know, he'd been in Ireland and open spaces and New York was so different. So performing the work that he does in a police officer, and I think they are signed, they work in neighborhoods in the Bronx initially. He needs some place that is just like so different from what his work environment is like that he chooses to live where they do. But then- you know, you want the women, you want Anne and Lena, like Lena tries to reach out to Anne. And even then she won't, you know, like there's this tense moment where she returns like a stroller or some kind of Mm -hmm. playpen or whatever that Lena has tried to gift her. So there's always such tension between the families. Like, you know, that they don't want their kids involved in each other. It seems like it would be better if they weren't friends. And that's one of the things that kind of 
is asked by Lena and Francis, like, should we have, you know, should we have steered Kate in a different direction? Should we have introduced her to different neighborhood children to play with? Why did we let this relationship be emphasized? And I'll say, you know, because if you've read the book, you'll know that Anne shoots Francis in the face, like in an altercation that she's having with her family that has escalated, you know, and it's escalated over the fact that Kate and Peter have been hanging out. Their kids have been hanging out and she's like intensely jealous of Kate in a way that just defies rationality. She feels like her Mm -hmm. son should do better. So the kids are out one night, they miss curfew and the situation escalates to the fact where Anne shoots Francis in the face when he comes to check on what he feels like is a domestic situation. Which in, in two mm-hmm. is a is a way that really I mean, isn't that the experience of every cop? You know, every time you knock on a door and you don't know what to expect. And yeah. kind of like the worst he's made such a concentrated effort to remove himself from that. But here it is right next door in the wife of a fellow cop and the wife of, of someone who's in your neighborhood, you know, like you've tried to divorce yourself from this violence and, and, and you find it anyway. Right. I read this book right after the Dutch house and it's funny. There's some parallels between them kind of about uh, children having to raise themselves. It's a lot of loneliness in both books, but in the end, I liked this one a lot better and I loved the Dutch house, Hmm. but I liked this one more. It felt more substantial to me. And is it because it was, was it darker? Is it because it was darker? Maybe a little bit. And Patchett's book is not quite as dark. There's definitely some, a lot of sadness in it, but it's more, it's got some more hope to it. This one was kind of relentlessly dark, but I just felt more immersed in this one. I felt more emotionally affected. I think the Dutch house, you read it with a little bit more of a remove maybe. But I just, I just really like this one. I, I would be interested in reading some of her earlier books. Um, I know she has a book about Typhoid Mary. Yeah, but fever. then there's also others. Yeah. Have you read anything else by her before? I haven't. I think I'm meant to read the one about uh, Typhoid Mary. Yeah. I mean, I can't say. You know, I was going to say I would love to read something that maybe is not quite as grim. I don't know if Fever is it. <laughs> I, I don't know that Fever would be it. There's something about this book too that did not stick with me as much. Like, you know, some of it is coming back to me as we discuss it, but I just wish there's things that I I look back and I say, oh yes, you know, they were trying to escape this and and this violence that, that they feared, you know, like they were constantly fearing whether someone's coming home or not. I just, I don't feel like I felt the character's, were quite as memorable or I remembered the story as much as I would like to looking back on it. Uh, I really yeah. remember, you know, I think one of the, the most character, the character I was touched by the most and loved was Peter's uncle. Oh yes. George. Yes. I mean, I feel like but he it- was the warmth or whatever. And not that, 
not that the younger characters, not that Peter and Katie were not warm. I think they always were going to gravitate towards each other. But I felt like that there was that element of sacrifice that George made when his brother just leaves his family. And Mm -hmm. that even with limited, you know, like whatever limits he had in his life, like he had issues with alcoholism, he lost a relationship that he really valued and in hindsight would have liked to keep. And he tried, he tries to do better. So it just seemed like Mm -hmm. whatever limits on his life, like he was always looking out for Peter and wanted him to exceed those expectations. And of course, Peter kind of ends up literally uh, following in the footsteps of his, of both, both his and Kate's father by becoming a cop, Mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning thinking that, okay, I can do this better. Like I will have a better outcome, you know, with my resources and with what I know. And he's gone to college and he just feels like he'll have a lot to offer to then, in some ways through no fault of his own because of mental illness and alcoholism being subsumed by the job anyway and family life. And what was your favorite character? Oh, uh, I liked Francis. I liked Francis and I think I liked George. Actually, you know what? My favorite character was Peter. I, I just, I just like, I was most affected by Peter. The motherless boy. In yeah, a sense, I don't know. He he yeah. tried so hard with his mom. He tried so hard. I mean the the way he would visit and really not getting a lot back from her. Yeah, yeah. The saddest moment for me was when Peter asked his father if he could go and get Peter's things from the house that they had had to leave in a hurry. Little things he had collected, including a a book that he wanted. And his father said, yeah, yeah, I'll go get it. And then he never did. It just made me so sad. I was like, that would have been a really small thing that would have like meant so much to him. Because that's what's important to a kid at that age. And I just, like, I kept thinking about that box of stuff and it made me so sad. Yeah. That was really, I couldn't quite figure the father out, Peter, Peter's no. dad. Like, did you, could you get Brian. a handle on him? No, just such a selfish person. I mean, obviously he had been born a lot with his wife, but, you know, the fact that on the night of the shooting that he went upstairs knowing that his wife was in the house with a loaded gun with his son. Well, he was kind of kind hoping, of it seems like it was implied that he was hoping that she was going to, he, he right, was not, ex- that she'd kill herself. Right. He was not expecting that but he I was going to shoot the neighbor. But the fact is that, that brought, you know, Peter was in the house. Right. And he still, he was a cop. And he didn't do anything. And, you know, I think that was a real choice. I mean, I guess it shows how desperate he was. Right. But it's still, that made me sad. What does the, did you remember what the title referred to? Yes, I do. And I loved the title. So what happens is that Kate and Peter are talking kind of, I think it's after he's done with rehab. Right. This is the kind of like, yeah. And they're just sort of like getting their life back together. And he, she, it's basically like, would you marry me over again? And she says, if you ask me again, I will say yes. And it's just kind of saying, I would choose you again, even knowing what we would go through. And I really liked that. I thought it was very sweet. And I liked, sort of just showed this 
you know, this destiny that these two had to be together and the loyalty and, and, and what they went through. So yes, I did really like the title. Do you think they make it? I do. I do. I mean, I think they were really tested and I think they came through. So yeah, I do think they do. What about you? I think so. She might be reluctant and there might be some reserve. It kind of reminds me of the nickel boys where, okay, Mm. I've got this thing. Yeah. I've got this thing that I've got to deal with or this thing that I now know about my husband, my partner. And yeah, we'll figure it out, you know? Right. Like she does kind of have to threaten him into rehab a little bit and she does catch him when he is, he's kind of relapsed for a few days. Yeah. So you know that there, there's always going to be an element of work there, but I feel like, yeah, I do feel like they make it or they, they will continue to make strides in their relationship. Yeah. I do really, really recommend this book. This is going to be in my top five for the year for sure. So we had a lot, a long show and a lot to get through, which we have done to the best of our ability while accommodating Gail's voice. (laughs) I will, like I have a list of self-help titles that I have read that I feel like might have have been useful. And I will send this to Gail so that she can attach with the show notes and a post that outlines some more of my ideas about skincare for those who might be interested. Oh, nice. And I will also link to a lot of those top, top books of the year posts that we mentioned. And until then, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the readerly report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, readerly report readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. You can also find Nicole at NicoleBonia.com and me, Gail, at EverydayIWriteTheBookBlog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks.